So turning your Bibles with me uh, to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to be reading um, verses uh, 2 to 15, looking at John's question. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And so this is a very fair question that John asks. And you'll remember the last time I had an opportunity to preach on uh, Matthew chapter 3, this was when John the Baptist arrived on the scene and things were looking up. Um, he, uh, he was out in the wilderness baptizing people, preaching, repent of your sins, the kingdom of God uh, is at hand. Um, and now uh, he's in prison and things are not uh, looking like they're turning out um, how, uh, how he may have expected things. And so he asks a very fair question of Jesus and it's important for us in our walk with the Lord to not be afraid to ask those questions. This is not opposition, but sometimes I think that there's a fear in our hearts and in our minds that when we question God that we are uh, opposed to God and that is the furthest thing from the truth. Jesus responds in grace, he says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, and he gives a, a, a long list of things. He says, blessed is he is not offended because of me. So he's not bothered. Jesus is not off-put by this conversation. And in fact, his answer that he gives is meant to center and encourage John. And so here's the list of all the great things that are happening. And he says, yes, I am the coming one. And he says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And we need to know and understand here the word offended. Um, it, 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 you know, in our connotation and certainly in the English language, there are different meanings to the word uh, offended, but really, uh, there's uh, at the core of this is this um, this this sense of, of I don't want to be a part of that. Um, I don't I don't trust it. Um, it doesn't sit right with me, and, and and so that's that type of offense. And Jesus says, "Blessed is he who's not offended because of me, not off put by the way that I'm doing things." Um, certainly, for John being in prison, that's probably not how John would have guessed things would have gone. And as we look further into the text, certainly we'll see the nation of Israel seeing things unfold before them, not in the way that they would have expected. And so uh, chapter 11, verse 7 says, And as they departed, so his disciples are still, John's disciples are still in earshot. They're off to give the answer to John. Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? So this is, this is talking again about him. A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments, indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. <laughs> but what did you go out to see? So this is the third time he's asking them, what did you go to see? And he answers it rhetorically. He says, a prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for he is the one whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way for you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is never, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And, from, and this is important for what we're looking at today. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the laws prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus affirms John and his role, and Jesus is aware that his disciples, John's disciples can hear this. 
Um, but he centers the people on John's role as a forerunner for the Messiah. Because as we look in, into these next uh, verses and next chapter, we're going to see the opposition is against the notion that Jesus Christ is the Messiah sent from God to fulfill God's kingdom on earth. And so uh, he calls, and this is important, he calls John the greatest of, who's to rise up or born of women, and yet one person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He also talks about the advancement of the kingdom of heaven and the opposition that it's faced. And then, and, and then because the Lord is talking to a predominantly crowd of Jewish people and we acknowledge that the Gospel of Matthew is written for, primarily for a Jewish audience, um, he, he says that John is Elijah. And in the book of Malachi, which would be a familiar uh, piece of scripture, in particular uh, scriptures that were hopeful of the Messiah's coming, they would realize that, that Elijah has promised to come back before the Messiah would arrive. And, and I love that Jesus says this. He, said, he invites them to hear what he has said. It's almost, it's almost like a pause. He says, if you have ears to hear, listen. Like, like he's, he's, he's calling them to actually reflect on what he's saying because he is setting the conditions for what's going to happen next, which is so significant. So let's move then on to, to Matthew chapter 12. Um, we're going to look at some instances of opposition. And, and we know uh, certainly that the Bible doesn't record um, every, every encounter that the Lord had on earth. Um, and as the writers led by the Holy Spirit would collect these stories and put them together for us to teach us and that we might learn, um, we see here in chapter 12 sort of three instances of opposition. The first two, um, without being disrespectful to anybody, they sort of show, um, I think, a little bit how... Um, silly or how how dead set uh, the, the Pharisees were against Lord Jesus um, and, but the but the third one just shows how far uh, which we'll get to just shows how far gone their their, their logic and their reasoning was so reading uh, verses 1 to 8 in Matthew chapter 12 at about that time Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath his disciples were hungry so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them but some Pharisees saw them do it and protested. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of the scriptures. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifice, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And so the situation is this. It's a Sabbath day, and to the Jews, that was a sacred day where no work ought to be done. And Jesus and his disciples are out in the fields, and coincidentally, the Pharisees are there too, because, and again, I don't want to get sarcastic, but I kind of feel like they're working policing the Sabbath, um, and, and again, as I say these things, like I see, just to be really clear, I am no better than they are. In fact, I see myself in them and the legalism and the desire to point the finger at other people. So as I, if there's any frustration, maybe it's actually quite frankly with me this morning. So, um, but here they are, they're out in the fields and they're hungry. And so they break off, uh, the heads of grain and started eating them. Now I've, I've lived a charmed life and enjoyed many things, uh, in it. And I'm confident many of you have too. Um, I believe that if broken off heads of grain were delicious, 
um, that I would have tried them by now um, in some sort of culinary piece. Um, and my point to this is like they're, they're legitimately hungry. Like this is not like the best way to enjoy grain. Um, and so they're, they're very hungry. They're taking some heads of grain and eating them. And so the opposition is um, the charges that are trumped up here are they're harvesting grain on the Sabbath, which doesn't seem to be exactly the case. So the rebuttal the Lord gives is this. First, there's a precedent for this. David and his companions um, have broken the Sabbath law. If, if you have a concern about the Sabbath law being broken, uh, but secondly, there are exceptions in the word of God. Um, and so the priests are allowed to be on duty and work. So if your problem's with the, the law being broken, that's allowed. And if your problem uh, is with working on the Sabbath, that's allowed. And then, and then he takes a moment to teach them. And he says, you know, my disciples are innocent. And really, where you need to get your hearts and minds is around the scriptures, where it says, I want you to show mercy, not to offer sacrifices. And so the Lord is, is explaining to these people, as, as they would accuse his innocent disciples, he's saying, it's not about following every step all the time in perfection without slipping up. It's about showing mercy. And he makes the claim that indeed he is the Lord over the Sabbath. He is the authority, not only for this rebuttal, but for this teaching. And the chapter continues on, and it's, it, it appears to be the same day. It says, then, the, then Jesus went over to their synagogue, where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? And they were hoping that he would say yes, so they could bring charges against him. And he answered, if you had a sheep and that fell into a well on the Sabbath, would you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, hold out your hand. And so the man held out his hand and it was restored, just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. And so here are the situation, it's the same Sabbath. And there's a man with a deformity and Jesus heals the man. Um, and, and the opposition is this, it's a, it's a preemptive question really based on a fallacy. And that fallacy is that it's work for the Lord Jesus Christ to heal somebody. Um, but they're, they're hoping based on this question that they're gonna get him, uh, as it were, that they're gonna trick him into saying something that they can bring charges uh, against him with. Um, and, so, and so his rebuttal is, is just very simple. Like it's, it's not wrong to show kindness uh, and in fact, People are more valuable than animals, and I know each and every one of you would work all day to pull a sheep out of a well uh, if it fell in on the Sabbath. Um, and, and so he says, and he's, he's clear on this, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. And so their response to that um, is that they want to kill him. Um, and there is, there's an escalation in the hostility towards the Lord. Um, you know, the Pharisees in particular have been challenged um, by his teaching, and I don't think that they were used to that, if I'm being honest and to being fair. Um, I, I think that they were a very calculated, capable, well-learned, knowledgeable group uh, who would bully people uh, into their ideas. Again, I can bully people into my ideas. Bully people into their ideas. Um, and, and they would use uh, leverage not only the law, but the, but the societal implications of the law to make everybody agree with them about what they were saying was right. And so, the opposition we see here, it's directed towards Jesus um, in front of them, but also towards the kingdom of heaven. Um, and, and, and that's because Jesus, uh, as it was talked about in Matthew 3, and John has been the forerunner for the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. That's the work that Jesus is doing. And it's just important uh, here that we understand just contextually, because it would be understood by every Jew 
both learned and layperson at that time that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, uh, was to be ushered in by the, by the Messiah and re resulting in deliverance. And I think, you know, we see through the scriptures that that notion of deliverance uh, sort of um, differs in the sense of what Jesus was offering and what, what the religious leaders of the day were expecting. And so, so this sets the condition um, for, uh, for them to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And if you look at verses uh, 22 to 35 with me, it says this, and, it, and it's interesting, it's, it's a shorter, uh, I'll save the comment on that, but anyways, a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Um, and I'll be honest, the first uh, number of times I went through this passage, this, this, I didn't recognize and realize the significance of it. Um, but really, one thing that did stand out to me was the people from this miracle were saying, you know, could this, could this, could Jesus actually be the Messiah? Um, and 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 it's and it's for this reason they knew that only the Messiah would be able to cast out a demon like this, because the person was unable to speak. And um, and in my learning and preparation for this, I've come to understand that Jewish exorcists uh, needed to hear the demon the demon's name in order to cast them out, and and that was often spoken or was spoken by the person possessed. And so what would happen is they would. They would speak to the demon in the person. The per they would say, what's your name? Through the vocal cords of the person possessed, they would say the name, and then they would use that name to cast the demon out. Well, in this case, the person couldn't speak, and yet the Lord Jesus was able to cast out the demon. And so the people looked. The people said, like, this has happened. We know this is only the Messiah is able to do this. Is this possible? Um, and so they looked. They looked to the Pharisees to validate this, to say, yeah, this has happened. You're right. Like, that's what the Word of God says. That's what the prophecies about the Messiah say. Um, but the Pharisees, and, and, and we've seen it, like, in these previous cases of opposition, they're so far from, from being reasonable, so far from, from wanting to, to learn or to be in a place where they're pliable to God, and again, I can be in that place, um, that they, they couldn't even consider the possibility of this. In fact, they wouldn't even concede at this point that Jesus was from God. Um, and so, you know, I just want to be clear here. They've studied the, the scriptures throughout their entire life. Um, and, and quite frankly, people who had never, who were illiterate, knew that, that this was something promised in, in God's word. Um, and, and so they were really, the Pharisees were in between a rock and a hard place here. Um, and so they attributed this, uh, this messianic miracle to Satan. Um, and that's, like, that's, that's not good, I think, is an, uh, that's an understatement. Um, verse 25 in chapter 12, so Jesus knew their thoughts. Now, I'm just going to back it up here, actually, just for a second. So in, in the green here, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. This is what they said. But it says Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. 
his own kingdom will not survive. And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you've said. But if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. And so Jesus doesn't just accept what they've said. He knows their thoughts, their innermost beings, and he, he gives them all of these holes in their logic. He gives them all of these things that would, would allow them to collect themselves and be like, yeah, what we've, what we've just said makes no sense at all, and we know better. And so he speaks to their thoughts, not to their words. And he wants them to see what's happening. He wants them to see that the kingdom of heaven uh, is at hand. And he gives them, he gives them this tool, this, this logic-based statement. If I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. And so it, it, it's a true invitation. And when we, when we hear what's going to unfold in the next couple of verses, we have to realize that, that, that these people... Uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they were fully aware of what they were saying. This is not an innocent mistake. This is not um, something that they're being held account to for, for uh, it's not reasonable. Um, he, and the Lord, in his grace and mercy, is really trying to give them an opportunity to realize what's going on. But unfortunately, they, they don't take it. And so in verse uh, 30 of chapter 12, it's, Jesus says, Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. And he draws a line in the sand. If you're not with me, then you oppose me. If you're not working with me, then, he, then, he, then you're working against me. And he, and he spells out their choice for them. Verse 31 and 32 say, So I, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man uh, can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven, either in this world or the world to come. And just important that we understand that Jesus is talking about himself when he says the Son of Man, um, and that's a phrase that he would use often. In particular, while Jesus is completely God and completely man in the flesh, 100%, he would use that phrase, Son of Man, uh, to help people relate, relate to his humanity. And so I don't mind saying, and this is not a good strategy, um, but when I read something in the Bible that makes me uncomfortable, um, lots of times I just, I just scooch past it. I just keep on going until I find something that I'm more comfortable with, more knowledgeable of. Um, and, 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 you know, my first time reading this in preparation uh, for this message, I got to say that that scares me. Um, like, isn't God supposed to be able to forgive everything? Uh, and I think, like, I don't want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Um, but I'm, I'm far enough in my, my Christian journey, um, and I'm not far at all, but far enough to know that I need to sometimes talk to other people and I need to use uh, trusted resources. And so um, I was sick with COVID a couple weeks ago, and who should come to my door but Brian Foreman uh, with this book in hand, and uh, very, very helpful and timely. In fact, um, I told Brian at the door because uh, he was excited to share some some of the learning he'd been doing, uh, just that, that this is exactly what I needed, and, and it truly was. Um, and so, uh, so all the smart things that are going to come, you know, in the next couple slides, they're not from me. Uh, they're from uh, Dr. Furchtenbaum, if that's how you say his name. So what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? So there's, there's two components here, and this is why I said in my introduction, we, can't, we cannot possibly do it, and not a person on earth can do it uh, today. 
and, and there's two parts. There's one, a blatant rejection of Jesus, and the attack through the attribution of Satan for the work being done by God through the Holy Spirit at that time by Jesus on earth. And because the Lord Jesus does not walk on earth with us today, because, because Jesus himself does not perform miracles before us today, uh, it is impossible uh, for us, for any person, to repeat that sin. Um, and so Dr. Fruchenbaum goes on, and I, I enjoyed this, these paragraphs, he said that in verses 30 to 37, he pronounced that's the Lord Jesus' judgment on the Jewish generation of that day. That generation had committed the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He should, one should clearly comprehend exactly what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is in the context in which it is found. And this is the only context in which it is found and must be interpreted accordingly. The unpardonable sin was not an individual sin. And so when we talk anytime uh, today, this morning, anytime we're, we look at ourselves as individuals before the Lord, but this was not an individual sin, but a national sin. It was committed by that generation of Israel in Jesus' day and cannot be applied to subsequent Jewish generations. The content of the unpardonable sin was the, the national rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus while he was physically present on the grounds that he was demon-possessed. This sin was unpardonable and judgment was set. And so when Jesus was on earth, when he had fulfilled uh, that list of things that, he, that John the Baptist, he had given back to John the Baptist to encourage him, um, when he performed miracles, when he taught with authority and knowledge, and ultimately when we came to this point where he performed a miracle that only the Messiah could perform and everybody knew it, um, they rejected him. And, and, and as we look this morning, we don't need to look far from ourselves, and we'll touch on this shortly, but it's not inconceivable that if we were those people in that place in that time that we wouldn't reject him also. Um, there is certainly uh, a tendency in our hearts uh, uh, to be narrow-minded, to be uh, tunnel vision, to have one focus. Um, and so, uh, but, but nevertheless, this generation, those people on earth at this time, members of the Jewish nation, rejected him. And so this sin cannot be repeated. And I, and I hammer that home because I don't want anybody here to be nervous uh, that, that they perhaps would, would be able to do that today. All sins can be forgiven. Uh, that's the good news of the gospel. And so, um, so by choosing to attribute this to Satan, um, they, they can't be forgiven. And, and, and so, uh, and I've said this before throughout, but we ought not to judge them because I think we're all capable of the same mistake. Um, and so it seems harsh, but there certainly was a progression um, throughout the time that the Lord was on, on earth and ample evidence and opportunity. Um, and he, he, the Lord Jesus shared the truth of the situation with them. He challenged their thinking, the, the errors in their logic um, and, and their position. And so Jesus made it clear, and this is what I love about Jesus, is there's, there's no doubt for us or for even for uh, members of, of the Jewish nation at that time or anybody of any faith group or identity group today, uh, anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven. And, 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 the nation, and when we look at the, the blaspheming here, that's unforgivable, that's that group, but, but really today anybody can be forgiven, and that's the good news of Jesus Christ. And so to conclude this section, uh, the, Lord, the Lord says this, in, in verse 33 to 35, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. And if a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. 
you brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak uh, what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And so Jesus pronounces judgment based on what they said and what was in their hearts. And, and this phrase um, coming from the Greek, the treasury of the heart, is the storehouse um, of, the most, of the most precious things. And so because we attribute lots of things to the heart uh, in our English language and in society today, but this is really the essence uh, of the person and what's most important. Um, and, and the treasury of their hearts has no, no vision for the Messiah and, and no room for Jesus. And in fact, they were... While they were waiting for the Messiah, they weren't, they weren't really expecting him, nor did they want him um, uh, as he was uh, to come and in the way he was coming. And so it's important, uh, I feel, that when we, when we look at such a, like, I want to say harsh, but I don't think that's the right word, but such a direct and clear pronouncement of judgment by Jesus Christ on a group of people, um, that we that we that we take a look to the to the to the opposite side um, of things. That we take a look to really the good news and the good opportunity. And and I want to be clear that you know, the Bible the Bible tells us that there are people that came into the kingdom of heaven, Jewish men and women uh, who are on earth who are part of that nation. And that's why we're, we differentiate between national sin, where they rejected somebody who had been promised to them, and individuality. Uh, where we look at the disciples, uh, we look at the, the other followers of Jesus, we look later on in other uh, books of the Bible in the New Testament, we see people of that time coming to know the Lord and receiving forgiveness from him. So I want to talk a little bit this morning, and we're actually, we're doing okay, I didn't, so that's great. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about forgiveness and if we have time, abundant life in Jesus Christ. And so the Lord says, anybody who speaks against me Jesus can be forgiven, and, and he's making it clear that uh, if you don't know who he is or, or what he's about, um, and you say bad things or, or you don't accept him, like, that's forgivable, right? Um, and he's really concerned about uh, our relationship to the truth. So uh, just like they were held accountable for what they said, what they spoke, and what was in their hearts, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ cares about uh, with us today. And you see, our, our situation is this. Uh, Romans spells it out very clearly that when we sin, uh, we get of a consequence, and that's death. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when we sin, we condemn ourselves to spiritual death, but we don't have to suffer that consequence, praise be to God. Uh, we can receive eternal life and spiritual life through Jesus Christ. And probably my two favorite verses on this matter uh, coincide nicely with the fact that, again, that, that judgment was pronounced and what they were saying and what was in their hearts because we're taught in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you openly declare or speak that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and it's by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. And so this notion then of, of the heart, the inner self, the treasury, what's most important if we believe there the truth of who Jesus says he is um, and openly declare it, we're saved. And what's so lovely about this is it's, it's, it's elegant and simple at the same time, right? We agree with, uh, with Jesus about who he is, about who we are. We believe that he's risen from the grave 
and we receive this truth into our hearts. We talk about receiving Jesus in our hearts. That's literally it. We take that truth and we bring it in, and it becomes, it lives, resides in the treasury of our hearts. And we openly confess this truth that indeed my life has been changed. I have been saved from the penalty of my sins. I have been made right with God. I am not special. Jesus Christ is special. And, and that's what's in my heart, and that's what comes out through the overflowing uh, of the joy that I have in my life. Um, and so today, you know, if you don't know the Lord or, or maybe uh, you've been thinking through these things and you're on, you're on your journey, you know, we're not, we're not really any different than, than that nation of Israel who rejected him. You know, when we, the heart is a complicated thing. Um, I work with teenagers every day, and let me tell you, uh, matters of the heart are not easy. Um, but uh, let alone uh, as, we, as we grow and perhaps we're hurt as we age and we've gone through hard things um, and, we're, and, and things are complicated. But, um, but you know, I talk to people and, and, and I enjoy my conversations and, and certainly there was a time in my life uh, where, where I, I wanted to dictate the terms, as it were, uh, like, like who God was allowed to be um, and some people I talk to, even if God's allowed to exist, um, who, uh, like how he should behave and what he should be doing for me, like the type of help I want. I always love thinking about, the, we've all been there, if, if your parents teaching your children to tie their shoelaces and they say, I want help. And so you don't do it for them, you talk them through it, and then they freak out because they just really want you to tie the shoelace for them. That's their idea of help, right? So, so we want to say that to God, I want help, but only this way. And, and if not, then you're not God, and I don't want you. Um, we, we think we know what's best for us, uh, according to our thinking and our limited scope of knowledge. Um, and we think we know that God, how God should go about accomplishing uh, all these things. And so, so those, like, we're no different in our heart without Jesus than, than those people were uh, back then when they, when they, as a group, committed uh, that sin. And really what Jesus offers is, is so much better um, than we could possibly fathom. And so this is not an exhaustive list, but, but he offers us forgiveness for sins and a right standing with God and a relationship with God, which as I, as I grow deeper and deeper in my relationship with God, I, I realize that it's something that's invaluable um, and nothing, no, there's nothing I would trade for it. Um, help in leading through the Holy Spirit, eternal life after this world and abundant life in this world. And I promise you that I will stop before 12 o'clock, so stay with me. It's warm, and I've been going on for a while, but we will. We'll have successfully gotten through two chapters, and we can be proud of ourselves as a group. So, uh, I actually didn't think I'd get here, but I'm glad, I'm glad we are, because this is one of the, uh, I don't know, I just, I, every day I'm just so grateful that I know the Lord, and, and this is something I wish more people had, is, is, is not only uh, knowing that, that you're forgiven, but just being able to live the best and most enjoyable life possible. And I wanted to look at just a couple of verses at the tail end of chapter 11 in Matthew. And this is what Jesus, so he's, he's sort of reassured, right? We started off with this where he's reassured John that, that things are going in the direction they need to go in. And he talks all about John and, and he makes, and, and he helps a bunch of people. We're not covering that. But then, but then Jesus says this, and I think this, you know, these words have never, that's not fair. These words ring true today, as they did back then. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you, because I'm humble 
and gentle at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. And so um, in my research, Brian also lent me a book from the 70s on how to train oxen. Um, that's not true, although his library is exhaustive enough that it might be there. Um, I, I, was, uh, I was doing a bit of research, and um, there's a lot, as you are aware, there's a lot of content on the internets. Um, but I found this pamphlet, and I, and I quite, in, quite enjoyed it. And these are, this is meant um, from, in the 70s, modernization in farming techniques, uh, primarily in developing nations. And it was a very, it's a very basic uh, booklet on you know, how do you train livestock to, uh, to be useful. And so um, and a couple of things that I pulled from this that speak really true to when the Lord says, um, you know, if you're weary and heavy, carry heavy burdens, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke and let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you'll find rest. And so uh, the ox is cared for and is, um, is, is in this relationship between the, the human, uh, or pardon me, I missed my first point. The man and the ox enter a trust relationship and the talk's all about how to build trust with the animal. Um, and then, and the ox is cared for and it's at peace and it's happy uh, in its work. Wouldn't that just be nice? Like, I don't know, I mean, I, have a, I enjoy my job a fair bit, but, but, but like every day, just to feel good and to be happy with the work in front of you. Um, so the man teaches the ox, and his voice is the primary means of direction, and the ox accomplishes much by simply being led. The ox enjoys the work and the rest, and so it's interesting because as every furrow is plowed, the ox is given a, a minute or two of rest, but there's also strong guidelines for how much work the ox can do in the day, and that rest, rest and residing uh, in, in that rest is, is so, so important for the animal's long-term success. And so the man is responsible for the pacing, providing the rest, and all of the ox's needs are, are met through the relationship. And that's what God gives us when we yield to him. And, and it's the Lord Jesus' heart for us today, for the nation of Israel then, um, and for all people um, no matter who you are, uh, come to me and I'll, and I'll give you that rest. And, and this notion, um, I, I've always thought, and I learned, learned a lot from this book actually, but I, I've always, for whatever reason, I don't think it's right or wrong, but I've always thought about taking that yoke upon you and that then it would be Jesus in that yoke uh, beside you, pulling the load with you. But that's not actually how yokes work. You have to have equally capable um, animals working uh, a yoke together. And so um, one of my learnings was, uh, was that there's a yoke uh, often used, especially in developing countries, for a single animal. And, and so if we think about that, that, that the Lord would invite us to take his yoke upon us, that we would be subject to his teaching, that we would trust him to be gentle and humble and kind to us to meet our needs, and that ultimately we'd find uh, that rest that we need. It's one minute left, so we're right on pace. Congratulations. Thank you for sticking with me. Um, on this as we've, as we've covered a lot. Super happy if you have questions. Certainly this is just a glance um, uh, at these two chapters. Uh, very happy if you have questions, but why don't we uh, conclude uh, our meeting in prayer together. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truth of who he is. We thank you, Lord, for forgiveness of sins made possible through him in his death and his sacrifice and his resurrection. I pray for each person here, Lord, uh, for that peace. God, that rest for their souls. God, I pray 
that, uh, the, that they would know that through Jesus. And I pray, God, that if they don't, that they would seek it out, Father. We just, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you love us. And we thank you, Father, for the day ahead. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.